Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Because it seems to me that was at least as important in terms of securing, um, you know, rebel control over the, the geographic, full geographic expanse of the 13 colonies. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor David Price giving us a fresh look at the Battle of Utah Springs. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor David Price, and he'll be offering a fresh glimpse at a very old battle, the Battle of Utah Springs. One of the great projects any historian can get into is looking at something old in a new way. And the American Revolution is littered with events, whether they be social events, cultural events, or military events that could always use a second look, or a third look, or a tenth look. The Battle of Utah Springs is one of those events that everyone has at least heard of, but surprisingly has gotten very little attention in the academic historical world. That's where David Price comes in. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with David Price. David Price, welcome back. Thank you, Brady. Good to be back. Tell us about your background. Okay, well, um, as I probably said before, and have on other occasions, I'm a history buff who likes to write. Uh, I'm not a professional historian. I'm, I am not degreed in history. Um, that was not my career. Uh, I was actually I, I actually worked for the state of New Jersey for 34 years um, and two months. But who's counting? And then in retirement, I um, got involved at uh, Washington Crossing Historic Park, the Pennsylvania Park, which is not far from me, uh, as a historical interpreter. And um, I've been doing that since oh, 2014. Um, and so my writing is really an outgrowth of that. I... Um, started a project after I'd been there a couple of years, which um, eventuated in my first book, and then went on to, which was Rescuing the Revolution, then went on to, to write two other books, um, The Road to Assembling Creek and John Hazlitt's World, which I like to think collectively um, compose a, um, or comprise a 10 Crucial Days trilogy. And so that's been my primary focus, although my last book, which came out uh, at the end of last year, is a, uh, I guess you'd call it pre-2014 
10 crucial days. It's about the Battle of Harlem Heights and is part of the small battle series that was launched by um, West Home Publishing a couple of years ago. And, and um, so that's basically what I've been doing. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, well, I'm not sure why now. I, I think I've been interested in this particular engagement for a while. I was thinking about this uh, the last couple of days, and I remember when I um, when I well when my website was launched about two and a half years ago, or a little more than that, I guess. Um, one of the and I started a um, uh, a blog entitled "Speaking of Which," uh, which is on the website at dpauthor.com, and, and having dispensed with that self-promotional uh, jab. Um, one of the one of my first blog posts was about Utah Springs. I, as I recall, I it, I published it on or about the anniversary of the battle, which would have been this was 2020, so it would have been the the 239th anniversary of the battle. So um, certainly, for at least that long a period of time, uh, there's been something about it that grabbed me. And when the uh, this article was published last week, I um, I published another blog post, if, if, which is not long. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to read it because I think it goes to the heart of your question, at least one of your questions. And, um, and for some reason, I guess I was feeling very self-conscious about this uh, because it was the first time I had written anything for for publication about any aspect of the Southern campaign. So I, I wrote um, in this, this just released post, I wrote, I've gone far afield with my latest contribution to the Journal of the American Revolution, delving into the Southern campaign that others have written about so expertly. And I do so with trepidation and a sense of intruding into an aspect of the American rebellion that should be left to others. Be that as it may, this article focuses on what may have been the most savage and was one of the longest contests in our struggle for independence, the Battle of Utah Springs. Why Utah Springs? Several reasons, I suppose. Number one, the unvarnished brutality of the event, which I think truly brings home William Tecumseh Sherman's reminder that, and I quote, war is cruelty and you cannot refine it. Number two, the fact that this was the last major open field battle of the Revolutionary War. Number three, focusing on it reinforces one's perception of the conflict as a civil war, given the prominent role played by both Whig and Loyalist troops in this engagement. Number four, its ambiguous outcome begs the question, which the article explores, of how one defines victory, quote unquote, in a military context. Number five, the idea that this was the capstone engagement in General Nathaniel Green's prolonged endeavor to fulfill his ambition of achieving a triumph that would earn him the acclaim of his and future generations. Number five, the irony of someone from New Jersey, such as yours truly, which of course is, was known or is known as the crossroads of the revolution, writing about a battle in South Carolina, which competes with the Garden State 
in claiming to have hosted more military encounters in the war than any other state, over 200 battles, skirmishes, and raids. And finally, and least compellingly, uh, with regard to the question of um, why I would write about this battle, why not? So that's the, that was the post. I think that answers your question. <laughs> David, what was going on in the war in the summer of 1781? Sure. Uh, well, by now, the war, of course, is the, the primary focus in terms of active um, combat has shifted, uh, uh, predominantly so, has shifted to the south. Um, it was, you know, a gradual shift. Uh, I think it started in 1778 when the British uh, invaded Georgia, conquered Savannah, it was the Franco-American expedition attempting unsuccessfully to re retake it the following year. And then 1780, the British um, invade South Carolina. When two of their uh, biggest victories of the war, the, the um, capturing um, Charleston in May 1780, and then Lord Cornwallis's defeat of the Southern Continental Army under General Horatio Gates the, uh, in, in uh, August 1780. And that prompts Washington to, to do what I think he wanted to do all along, but had been uh, frustrated by Congress. But now Congress basically said he could, he could do this, to name his own uh, general as, as uh, commander of the Southern Theater, and he chose Nathaniel Green, Major General Nathaniel Green, who was at that point became the fifth uh, major general to uh, assume command of the Continental Army in the South. And he was delighted to do, to do so because he had been desperately seeking to extricate himself from the post of quartermaster general of the Continental Army, which he had done at Washington, very reluctantly at Washington's request, but uh, was, you know, yearning to, to escape from that and assume uh, active field command because he um, was, well, yearning for military glory, I think is, is a fair way to put it based on what I've read. And, and he knew he wasn't going to, no matter how efficient and effective he was as a quartermaster, quartermaster general, and he was very much so, he wasn't going to earn those plaudits doing that. So um, after the, um, the, at this point, early 1781, that the tide has begun to turn in the south with the the victory um, at King's Mountain in October 1780 by the over the mountain men against uh, Major Ferguson's uh, Tory force and Sir Henry Clinton, the, the commander of the British uh, Army um, in in America at the time, later wrote that he thought that was the the beginning of the end, if you will for British fortunes in the South. And then in January, uh, Brigadier General Daniel Morgan, with his detachment that had been, that Green had um, detached from his main force, wins this overwhelming victory at Cowpens, perhaps the most one-sided open field uh, battle victory by American troops against British regulars in the war. Um, then there's this major battle at Guilford Courthouse in March, where uh, Lord Cornwallis wins a very pyrrhic victory over Nathaniel Green's army, 
um, in the sense that um, he holds his army holds the field at the end of the day. So in a very narrow tactical sense, yes, they won the battle, um, at least the way victory was defined in a military context at that time. But at a horrendous cost, about 25% of Cornwallis's army um, were casualties. And he makes a critical decision at that point um, that the only way for the British to win the war in the South is for him to, instead of focusing on the Carolinas, as he had done up until now, in accordance with the orders he had been given by his superior, General Clinton, in New York, that he should go north into Virginia, the largest and most populous um, state, and attempt to conquer Virginia. And by do- by doing so, he would, in, in his estimation, cut off the uh, supply line from uh, the north to Green's army in the south. And then once he had conquered Virginia, he would turn, presumably he would turn south and, and finish off Green's army. Green, rather than pursuing Cornwallis, makes an equally momentous decision, and that's instead of going north into Virginia, to go south into South Carolina. Um, he figures, you know, the, the hopefully the, the American forces in Virginia can can deal with the the threat there. And he wants to regain as much of uh, South Carolina and Georgia as he can, as expeditiously as he can. And my sense is that the the reason he wanted to do that, the, the prime motivating factor for him um, in 1781 was that he was anticipating, based on, uh, I don't know if it's fair to say these were rumors or, or more substantial tidings than that, but um, word was out that uh, the European powers, uh, at least the, the Austrians and the Russians, were um, seeking to mediate a peace settlement between France and Britain, in which, um, presumably at the conclusion of hostilities, each side would retain whatever territory it held when the conflict ended. Under the principle of international law known as, uh, I'm going to butcher this because I'm not very conversant in, in Latin, but ute posseditis, which means as you possess. And so... Um, this lent urgency to, to Green's campaign, if you will, um, to you know drive the enemy from the the back country um, as quickly as he could, so as to you know secure those uh, the deep south, really South Carolina and um, Georgia for the United States. David, could you talk about South Carolina's revolutionary history? Yeah, well, um, of course, the, the the South was not the primary theater of conflict prior to 1780, I guess. Um, but that doesn't mean there wasn't action going on there. I mean, there was a, if if there was a, this was, you know, as you and I both know, very much uh, a civil war, and. Uh, all over, but especially so in the South, where you had the, the partisan bands, the uh, Patriot or Whig or Rebel Militia, whatever you want to call them, fighting 
um, Tory militia, you know, early on, uh, the first major um, contest in the South in, that is involving regular troops, I think it's fair to say, was the Battle of uh, Sullivan's Island uh, at the end of June 1776 when a uh, British expedition under General Henry Clinton uh, made it their, their first of it the first British attempt to uh, capture Charleston. And if they did that, presumably they would have done what they did in 1780, which was then um, invade the interior and seek to um, conquer Georgia and the Carolinas. But they were turned back in um, their attempt in 1776. A British fleet, large British fleet, I think there's something like 20 ships under Admiral Peter Parker, um, pounded Fort Sullivan on Sullivan's Island, which guarded the the uh, entrance to the Charleston Harbor. And um, they were unsuccessful. The um, American troops there were commanded by Colonel William Moultrie, um, were able to successfully defend the fort, and the British cannibals largely bounced off of or did no damage to the, um, the fortifications they had there, which... Uh, were comprised to a large extent of, of sand and, and spongy uh, palmetto logs, and they uh, absorbed the, uh, the artillery fire very successfully. So the fleet had to turn back. That was the end of that expedition um, in uh, 1776. And as uh, soon as I said, there was, there was fighting going on after that. Um, you had battles going on. Well, in large numbers, minor, you know, these were, these were minor battles, but, um, but ones like uh, Briar Creek in 1779, uh, which was a, um, a victory for the, the British cause or the Loyalist cause. But the, um, the, major, the major fighting really, um, you know, erupted with the, with the, the British invasion. Um, in 1780, after Horatio Gates' army had been, you know, effectively wiped out, um, or at least reduced to a shell, uh, after the Battle of Camden, the, it was the militia uh, on the rebel side, if you will, that really held the fort, um, metaphorically speaking, until Green came along and reinvigorated the Continental Army. But throughout 1780, the so-called partisan bands, as they were known, that were led by the likes of um, uh, uh, Brigadier General Francis Marion, who had served in the, the, the Continental Army, but now was leading a um, South Carolina militia. Um, Andrew Pickens, Thomas Sumter, known as the Carolina Gamecock, they were giving the enemy fits um, all through this period, 1780, 1781. And um, really, the, I think the role that they played is, is probably, obviously there's been uh, a good deal written about them, I think probably more so of late uh, in books like, um, you know, J Jack Buchanan's masterful two-volume history of the, the war in the South, but in the Deep South. But... Um, 
their their contribution to the ultimate outcome, I think, is probably one of the most overlooked or unsung aspects of the uh, you know of the Revolutionary War. What brought the opposing forces to Utah Springs? So, um, well, let's get back to Nathaniel Green. Um, so, as I, as I said, he uh, you know he had decided to go south when Cornwallis went north, and um, he is um, now he's pursuing his strategy of of seeking to drive the British from the interior back to their uh, seaport you know, citadels at um, Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah in Georgia. And his campaign is being aided by the likes of the militia that I mentioned under guys like Marion and, and the Pickens and Sumter, um, especially uh, Marion and, and Pickens. Sumter, Sumter was, a, was a prickly fellow, and it appears he, he didn't like uh, taking commands from, from someone else. Um, in this case, Nathaniel Green. So, um, but Marion and, and Pickens, especially Marion, I think, worked uh, overall, you know, hand in glove with um, with Green's uh, Green's forces. And in fact, Green dispatched uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, Lieutenant Colonel um, Henry Lee, the father of Robert E. Lee, and his Lee's Legion, which was a mixed cavalry infantry unit, to um, to work with uh, Marion's militia, and um, they enjoyed great success doing that. Just two, uh, well, yeah, in April, I guess it was two days before the Battle of Hobkirk Hill, they captured Fort Watson, which was a significant win um, in terms of uh, uh, cutting into the British supply uh, line of supply and communications from Charleston to the interior, to their uh, particularly to their post at uh, very important strategic post at Camden. So that's where the Battle of Hogger Kill, or the second Battle of Camden, excuse me, was fought on April 25th, 1781. Um, I like to call that a major-minor battle. In fact, I just, um, brief digression here, I just um, recently submitted another article to uh, the journal about Hobkirk Hill, and that's the proposed title Hobkirk Hill, a major minor battle, which as of this week is now in the queue. Um, anyway, so back to the, the narrative here. Um, Hobkirk Hill was like uh, Guilford Courthouse, another tactical win for uh, the British, but a very costly one. Um, their losses in this battle were close to 30%, and uh, although they, you know, they held the field at the end of the day. Sometime after that battle, the British field commander in the uh, in South Carolina, uh, to whom Cornwallis had yielded that command when he decided to go into Virginia, young um, Colonel Rawdon, Francis Lord Rawdon, um, he returned to England due to ill health, and his successor uh, in assuming field command in uh, South Carolina was a veteran, 42-year-old veteran by the name of um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart, who had seen a lot of action uh, prior to to this war, but this was his first independent command in the Revolution. He he and his troops had come over 
uh, late in the conflict from from uh, Britain. And um, so now as we get into the summer of 1781, uh, Stuart's force, uh, about 2,000 men, has come north from um, Charleston to the Utah Springs area, which is 50 to 60 miles northwest of Charleston. Green has spent the summer uh, with his army encamped in the high hills of the Santee because it was, um, well, I, th I think primarily because it was more healthful, uh, a more healthful environment than the lowlands. And we have to remember troops on both sides were dealing with, you know, malaria and yellow fever, uh, among other things, among the many challenges that Green's army had to, to face, along with their chronic need for um, men and horses and forage and uniforms and equipment and yada, yada. Um, but Green was getting better intel than Stuart. Uh, he was aware of the general whereabouts of Stuart's army, and he was in a mood, Green was, for a fight. Uh, he wanted to have at Stuart, and um, he sought a battle on, on ground of, of his choosing and was hoping and expecting, I think, it's fair to say, to deal a mortal blow to the British Army in South Carolina and to win at last this um, tri triumph that uh, he, he so ardently yearned for. Stuart, I think it's fair to say, was spoiling for a fight also. Uh, he sought to deal a crippling blow to uh, Green's army and to stabilize the situation in uh, South Carolina, which in the interior of South Carolina, which was getting you know pretty desperate for the British at this point because their various outposts, one after another, were, were falling to the rebels, either because they had been captured or because you know, they had been abandoned by the British. Um, Fort Watson, as I mentioned, Camden, um, Fort Mott, Fort Granby, um, Georgetown, Orangeburg. I may have missed one or two, I don't know. But um, so, uh, oh, and uh, Augusta. So this, I think, Stewart probably realized was uh, probably his last chance to, you know, deal enough of a blow to the... Um, opposing army, regular army, to um, perhaps, you know, rever reverse the momentum of, of the war in South Carolina at that point, was, which was clearly not going Britain's way. So, um, unfortunately for, um, for Stuart, he was not getting good intel because, um, you know, they're, they're just, the community was not responding this wasn't new. The community was not responding to um, the British presence there, or the loyalists in the latent or otherwise in the community were not responding to the British as um, you know his, his uh, Majesty's commanders had hoped. And so um, Stuart really didn't know that um, Green was approaching. Green's force was approaching his until early on the morning of September 8, 1781. Um, now, a couple things happened that, you know, pre, I'll call these pre-battle events that um, 
triggered his awareness that you know a fight a fight was uh impending shall we say um one was that a uh he had sent out a rooting party i think that's what they called about 300 men early on the morning of September 8th to gather potatoes from a nearby plantation and so these men were out <coughs> excuse me gathering sweet potatoes when they ran into the advance guard of Green's army, which um, had started marching from their encampment at Burdell's plantation, which was seven miles away. So they had a you know, fair-sized march to undergo before they ever got to the battlefield. And uh, so they encountered this, this rooting party, and um, shots were exchanged. And it appears that those 300 men were either captured or, or driven off but, but didn't regain um, or didn't rejoin, I should say, Stewart's main force until after the battle. And then the other thing that happened was early that morning, I think it was about 6 a.m., a couple of American deserters wandered into uh, Stewart's camp and alerted him to the fact that Green's army was close by. So he sent out a uh, mixed detachment of, of cavalry and infantry under Major John Coffin to uh, reconnoiter the situation, and they ran into Green's advance guard. Uh, again, there was there were shots exchanged. Coffin fired, or excuse me, charged. Um, he was heavily outnumbered. I, I presume he didn't realize that at the time. His men were driven back, driven off, and he uh, retreated uh, to um, back to the British encampment and apprised. Um, you know, Rawdon of what was going on. Now, of course, Rawdon could hear the firing, um, and, and so he was in the process of hastily assembling his, um, you know, his troops. Um, they would line up uh, basically a single line from left to right, or south to north, across what became the battlefield, whereas Green would um, configure his forces in three lines, uh, with the militia in front, uh, Continental regulars in the second line, and then a reserve behind them. And in doing so, he was really emulating the, uh, the template, if you will, that had been established by um, Daniel Morgan at Cowpens, which had worked so successfully for, the, for him then, back in, in January of 1781. And then Green did more or less the same thing, I think it's fair to say, at Guilford Courthouse two months later. So he was doing the same thing here. Um, Green, like Washington, had a chronically low opinion of of uh, militia and um, felt the only way they were, they were going to win the war was with primary reliance on regular troops, regular Army troops. But uh, notwithstanding that, he... He did uh, ask the militia to play a significant role in this battle, and, and they did. And um, in general, you know, for the most part, or at least some of the some of those units, the the, uh, the South Carolina militia under Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, to be sure, acquitted themselves well to the point where uh, Green singled them out for compliments after the battle. Um, so that gets us to the to the point where the, the fighting begins in earnest. Um, David, if you could, take us through the battle. Sure. 
Okay. Well, you have um, stages or phases of the fighting where um, the tide seems to be to be turning in terms of the movement of the troops. So in the initial fighting, um, the militia in the front line are, are holding their own uh, at first, and then some of those units start to break away. And um, so Green sends in reinforcements, uh, Continental regulars to, to uh, supplant them. Um, the British think they see an opening, and, and they charge forward once a bayonet charge, uh, which was their you know modus operandi throughout the war. But uh, then Green sends forward his best units, the Maryland and Virginia Continental uh, regiments from his second line, and they drive back the British. Um, and at one point, it looks like this is going to be a route for Green's army. They drive the, the British in the center back through their, their encampment. And um, now this is where things kind of bog down. And there are a couple of um, factors that come into play here in terms of obstacles to the American advance. So one is uh, on the right flank, um, Stuart had positioned arguably his, his best troops and an elite um, flank brigade under uh, Major John Marshbanks, who was commanding uh, grenadiers and, and uh, light infantry from the 3rd, 19th, and 30th regiments. And they were very well positioned behind the protective cover that was afforded them by uh, thickets of blackjack, which was a dense undergrowth of scrub oak that lined Utah Creek. So they were behind that, and in that position, they were they were really um, impervious to, to the uh, cavalry charge that uh, the Americans att attempted against them under Colonel Lieutenant Colonel William Washington, um, George's second cousin once removed. And so uh, Marshbanks' uh, flying brigade held off, fought valiantly, held off the, uh, the American attack, and then at one point they actually come forward, uh, they counterattack. Marshbanks was mortally wounded in this battle, would, would come in for uh, particular praise from Stuart afterwards, as well he should have. The other obstacle to the American advance was that the, uh, the British, or, or rather a, a Tory um, regiment, and we have to remember that uh, the Tory provincial troops accounted for about 30% of uh, Stuart's force. A New York regiment under Major Henry Sheridan, per Stuart's orders, had occupied a brick house that uh, kind of dominated the battlefield. It was uh, open, open fields on, on three sides and the creek on the north. And so it, the, the men inside, um, those, those uh, loyalist soldiers, were uh, really in that position. They, it, it was impervious to musket fire from the Americans. And so they, the Tory troops, uh, were shooting at the Americans from second-story windows with their muskets. And they also had these um, um, swivel guns like, like mini cannon and wrecking havoc on the Americans. Um, the, the, in, in conjunction with that, the American advance towards the, the brick house had been, um, impeded to say the very least by the fact that when the troops 
came through the, the, the British encampment, the tents that were standing uh, between them and the brick house, they appear to have, and there's been a lot of controversy about this uh, historiographically over the years, but it appears whether they were, you know, indulging in certain temptations like rum or food or, or whatever else they could get their hands on, or whether just seeking shelter from enemy fire from the brick house, many, uh, probably most of those soldiers, uh, the enlisted men, took refuge in these tents. And their officers who had been leading the charge were now out in the open between the encampment and the brick house, and they were being uh, slaughtered, maybe not too strong a word. Um, at the end of the day, something like uh, 60 out of 100 officers in in uh, Green's army were, were casualties, which may have been the highest casual, casualty rate among officers in any Rev War battle, and about 70 uh, British officers were casualties as well. So... After about three hours of fighting, somewhere between three and four hours, at least three hours, which makes this one of the longest battles of the war, in addition to, to one of the bloodiest and most ferocious, Green decides to call it a day. Uh, and I think it was he was motivated by a confluence of factors. One is the fact that his men were exhausted. You know, they had been marched, they marched, as I mentioned before, seven miles, and then they were fighting for at least three hours in brutal heat, um, the kind that, you know, uh, creates the real threat of heat stroke. They were obsessively thirsty at this point as a result, and um, in order to you know quench their thirst, they would have to fall back several miles because they didn't they couldn't access Utah Creek because the enemy stood between them and the creek. Although that begs the question of why they didn't seek water from the Santee River, which the Utah Creek was a, a tributary of. Um, I don't think that question has really been answered. But uh, those factors, uh, plus the fact that the high casualty rate among officers that I mentioned um, had kind of, um, you know, undermined unit cohesion and coordination among the various um, uh, rebel um, detachments. And um, so Green decides to call to order a retreat. It's an orderly withdrawal. Um, they're, they're not uh, a fighting withdrawal. You know, they're not fleeing. Um, and as he did so, I think he was fully intending to resume the battle the next day. He, um, you know, he thought at this point that the discretion was the better part of valor. He should fall back, you know, reorganize, and then he would um, intended to go after Stewart's army the next day and probably figured that Stewart's army had been so damaged that it would be unable to mount any kind of serious pursuit, which was indeed the case. So even though Stewart's army held the field at the end of the day, you know, they were not capable of um, of going after Green's uh, forces in retreat. And, in fact, they wouldn't be able to hold on to their position, um, you know, at that point. The following day, he begins to retreat, uh, Stewart, excuse me, begins a retreat back towards Charleston. He's being reinforced um, at that point by um, a, a contingent that had come out from uh, from Charleston. Um, and so that was under Major uh, MacArthur, Archibald MacArthur. Uh, Green did send out a, uh, a force, uh, Marion's, um, Francis Marion's Brigade and Lee's Legion to um, at least try to harass Stewart's 
left flank. But once Stuart was reinforced by MacArthur, um, you know, Marion Lee realized that, you know, really they they couldn't do more than skirmish with the enemy. They weren't strong enough to, um, you know, really at, at seriously attack this combined force. So they let um, they let them go. They let Stuart's uh, army go, and it and it retreated to Charleston. What is significant about Utah Springs is I think, you know, it's it's now the, the third of these three major or fairly major in question whether Hopkirk Hill is a major major minor battle, as I said, three open field engagements in seventeen eighty one where the British had uh, Guilford Courthouse, Hopkirk Hill and now Utah Springs, where the British had suffered heavy losses and particularly so at Utah Springs. I mean the 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 toll is almost astronomical, almost 40%. And think about that, that's a staggering number, almost 40%, if not 40% of Stewart's force is killed, um, wounded, or, or missing, including the captured. Green's losses were heavy too, about maybe, maybe as much as 25%. But the point is that you know, the, in any of these battles, the rebel side could afford losses much more so than the British. And so I think this was really, Utah Springs was the the final blow, crippling blow, uh, in terms of eliminating any offensive capacity on the part of the British Army uh, in South Carolina to conduct offensive operations in the interior uh, at this point, they were really relegated to the status of um, coastal garrisons, you know, in, in uh, Charleston, uh, in Savannah, in Wilmington, North Carolina. They would only intrude into the the countryside for, uh, you know, when they wanted to to raid for, for food or forage, but uh, no, no major uh, offensive operations. The Civil War between um, Whig and Loyalist, you know, militia raged on throughout the rest of 1781 into 1782. Um, over that time period, the latter half of 1781 um, and 1782, uh, by the end of 1782, the British have uh, withdrawn from those um, coastal enclaves, first Wilmington, in 1781, then Savannah, and then finally Charleston. So I think, you know, what's most important in terms of the big picture here, really, um, now Rev. War buffs, and especially those who have spent any time, you know, reading about the Southern campaign understand this, but the um, so much uh, attention is paid to Yorktown, you know, as, as the climactic uh, victory for the uh, quote-unquote glorious cause, that it overshadows what, uh, you know, what Green's army and the militia were doing in the Deep South, because it seems to me that was at least as important in terms of securing, um, you know, rebel control over the, the geographic, full geographic expanse of the 13 colonies and um you know that was the 
the measure of, uh, of Green's quote-unquote genius, if you will, or success. Uh, and in fact, the Battle of Utah Springs was one of only six um, military operations in the war that was recognized by Congress in, in terms of um, their um, having a medal struck to commemorate that event. And which I mentioned in the article, and that medal, if you will, is memorialized in a panel that's one of six panels on a uh, bronze door at the east portico entrance to the U.S. House of Representatives chamber. Has been there, I think, since 1905, and one of those panels depicts Green receiving this medal and a flag from Congress for his victory at Utah Springs. Um, and I guess the final thing I would say about that in terms of this so-called victory is that, you know, I mentioned that he was, he was yearning for a, a triumph that would, um, you know, glorify him in the eyes of his contemporaries and posterity. And he did a masterful job from a propaganda standpoint in selling this somewhat ambiguous victory as that glorious triumph. Um, and, um, you know, it was recognized as such by by Washington and and by the Congress and uh, others. So even though he didn't really, I mean, if you want to be objective about it, he didn't really secure that that glorious triumph in terms of a a, a purely one-sided military victory. But uh, he did his best to sell Utah Springs as as being that that uh, that very event. David Price, thanks again. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>